Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Georgie Turner is excited about the potential of Aussie startups, partly because she herself has been entrepreneurial since she was a tiny child, and partly because Australians have plenty of first-hand experience with the world's most pressing problems, and Georgie believes nothing motivates quite like a mission to save the world. Described by her fellow investing partners at Tidal Ventures as a go-to market guru and a fundraising gun, Georgie has extensive experience in investment banking, as well as enterprise sales, working closely alongside founders today to develop successful go-to-market strategies. She brings wisdom and dedication to help founders optimise their business and to prepare for the next round of funding. She started her career in investment banking at Lazard, but's also worked in other venture and startup spaces, including Bailador and Rackspace. Georgie, thanks so much for making your time available. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Tell us a bit about what you were like growing up. Did you grow up in Queensland? I did. That's well researched. Um, Yeah, so originally from Brisbane. Um, Look, growing up, I was most certainly an ambitious child. I was the one, you know, out on the front lawn with the lemonade stand trying to sell various artwork projects and whatnot to be able to fund my fund my appetite for sweets around the corner. I've always been interested from that perspective in business and doing things that are, you know, entrepreneurial, I suppose. Yeah, my upbringing was, look, was, you know, happy suburban Brisbane upbringing. I always think that, um, you know, most people who are ambitious tend to have a chip on their shoulder. I'm still trying to figure out what mine is and, and where it came from, but I most certainly had one and um, sought to kind of get out, I would say, of Brisbane as quickly as I could. Nothing wrong with Brisbane. It's a wonderful place. Jesus, it's a lot nicer now than when I grew up there. But I always had the ambition to go elsewhere and move on to bigger and better things as soon as I had sort of finished my schooling. And were your parents business people? Did they run their own business or was that just something that came from internally? My dad uh, was a partner at a um, a property valuation company. He used to take me to work with him from when I was about seven. I used to go with him to his office and do the filing. Um, and I would file away, um, you know, folders full of like strata plans and things like into those big sort of filing cabinets that would move around. So he took me, yeah, he took me there from a young age and I kind of just, got a sense of what an office culture was like, I suppose, from early childhood. So that was good. I actually worked for him all the way up until I, I left school to go to uni. So and I and I held multiple jobs actually during school as well. I, you know, worked as soon as I was the legal age, I was always working 
working jobs and saving money and I wanted to travel and and things like that and I do think that definitely my parents instilled that in me so it was always um you know you have to earn your keep you're not necessarily going to have everything paid for and taken care of so they were it was a good amount of tough love from that perspective which I'm very grateful for now and you've got one child who's um just two-ish what sort of lessons from your upbringing do you think you'd like to sort of transmit to to your kids look definitely work ethic but I would like to give her a sense of she could be anything that she wants to be and that the the world is kind of her oyster from that perspective it definitely wasn't until I had kind of left small fry upbringing and and actually moved to Sydney and started spending time globally that I realized just the scope of what's available to people and so definitely you know I want her to if she's not interested in you know being a business person then that's of no concern to me but whatever it is that she is interested in that she wants to do I want to be able to give her the platform to do that I think that that is is kind of my job as a parent and then after that you get out of the way (laughs) <laughs> and so you managed to escape Bris Vegas um, and then settle in Sydney. Tell us about what you sort of felt career-wise that was attractive to the path that you took. Career-wise for me, I wanted to be situated in a city that gave me a bit of a global perspective. Sydney's probably the best option for that, I would say, in Australia, so that, that definitely drew me to Sydney. I would have probably gone overseas earlier in my career if I hadn't if I hadn't met my husband in Sydney whose business is situated in Sydney as life just you know throws you what you get dealt it was a global perspective but probably just the lifestyle of Sydney appealed to me as well having spent time in other cities in the world traveling for work or pleasure or, or whatever I definitely feel that it, it's the most kind of aligned with my lifestyle and values and how I want to live and it's amazing how you go full circle and now here I am sort of, you know, back in a house in the suburbs, raising a family, just like I, like just like just it was when I grew up. <laughs> and that kind of comes back to family values, right, that you, you kind of realise what's actually important along the way and end up um, back, back where your parents kind of taught you to be. And so you started in investment banking and I'm fascinated that you, you made that transition from investment banking to something quite different. Can you talk a bit about how you approached that decision and decided what to do next? Yeah, so I've always been a, I definitely have a bias to action and when doors open, my first instinct is to walk through them, sometimes rather blindly and see kind of where life takes me. So that's definitely led me to where I am now. When I was in investment banking, it was good as a kind of launch pad for a career, I would say, like a great sort of commercial understanding of business, fundamentals, valuations, and actually skills. So the the skills to be able to kind of pick up a spreadsheet and make sense of something through analysis was something that I would never take back. Um, But I quickly learned that there are definitely people who can manage on the advisory side and people who need to be on the doing operating side. And I definitely was leaning more towards wanting to be in the weeds, actually working within a business. So I quickly kind of looked for opportunities to get out of that more finance advisory position and move more into the weeds of a, an actual company. And it just, it through absolutely no premeditation on my behalf, it ended up being a tech company. 
And I took the opportunity to join a, a startup called Rackspace, which was already fairly established in the US through the Texan headquarters over there selling infrastructure as a service. They had data centers around the world and they were um, launching their team in the APAC region. So um, I took the opportunity to join them at the very early stages of that hypergrowth scale. Uh, you know, it got up to 100 people at the point where, where I left and um, did a bunch of, you know, go-to-market selling into corporate enterprise here in Sydney. They put together a cloud offering in the Sydney data center. And so we initially competed directly with AWS which was tough, so I've definitely been on the um, underdog side of competing with a pretty amazing offering as that was. And that actually exposed me to startups because back in you know, 2012, 2013, it was really startups that were adopting cloud. It wasn't some of the bigger companies in Australia that were migrating off their on-prem service at that point. Most of these were brand new companies looking at you know, low cost, low capex deployments of compute infrastructure. And um, I had exposure to the, the tech startup scene through that, um, which was extremely exciting to me. I think I've always been drawn to things that are early, starting from scratch kind of mentality rather than something that's established that needs to be improved upon. And so uh, I sort of leaned towards that and a door opened and um, someone said, come and, come and do venture capital and um, through really no deliberate <laughs> work on my behalf I had the opportunity to to join the venture capital industry at a time that was relatively early um there was still you know there were a few established funds but definitely not to the level of sophistication that we're starting to see now I joined a later stage fund called Baylador and um had an amazing experience working with their portfolio for the first sort of three years saw an opportunity to move into the early stage and um that door opened and I took it so that's what led me to title. And it's very much what title's all about. It's very much at that early seed stage. What is it that attracts you to that sort of almost the very earliest investment opportunity in a company's life? Look, I'm a firm believer that great investors need to be able to see leading indicators rather than lagging indicators to performance. So whilst the later stages are exciting as the company scales quickly, particularly when they're funded with great amounts of capital. The early stages are more challenging and more rewarding in that there's a lot more problem solving involved. You're looking at the possibility of something and there's, there's something attractive about looking at the possibility rather than looking at existing data and trying to evaluate and benchmark performance. So whilst we do do a little bit of that at Tidal, most of the investments that we're making are in founders who have an early product that they've just brought to market and they're seeing some traction and they're looking at proving out all of the things that they need to prove to become more institutionally investable. And so we work with them on just developing the sophistication of their business, whether it's the product or the go-to-market strategy to get them in shape to be able to take on bigger amounts of capital if that is a good strategy for their business. And I like that level of close involvement that we have working with the founders there's something great about being the first check-in. You're a first believer. Founders appreciate that and it makes the, the long game more rewarding over time. And you also have taken a board seat in a number of the companies that you've invested in. What's, what's the experience like being a board member? Because you almost move from being a remote participant to being right up close to how the, the company operates. 
Yeah, it's there's not a huge difference. You know, we don't have board directorships on all of our investments. Sometimes we just take a board observership. Board directorships at the early stages are more operational than governance. So they're more fun and more interesting, I would say. But most of the work happens in between the board meetings. I would say that the board meetings themselves are around resetting on big picture. What do we want to do? What's the right strategy for the business from a capital management perspective, both the deployment of capital and the raising of capital? And then we tend to do most of our work with our founding teams in between the board meetings where it's really more workshops, you know, first phone call if they need help with something, coaching, helping them hire people, that kind of thing, unlocking resources. That's the more rewarding part, I would say, than the, um, the board meeting itself. And you should be congratulated because I think Tidal is just deploying its third fund, which, you know, in the current environment's super impressive. What are you seeing in terms of the companies in your pipeline? Are there any sort of trends that are different now as compared to when you first started at Tidal? Yes and no. So in terms of things that are similar, we deployed Fund 2 with a mentality to stick to our sort of core, which is the thematics that we like to invest in the sort of unit economics that we expect to see and the kind of product that we like to kind of work with founders on. And can you just quickly explain those? What what are those? Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. So for fun two, we had a number of sort of core thematics that we wanted to deploy capital around. So circular economy and sustainability was a big one for us. Cybersecurity was another big one. We've had a long held and developing thesis around e-commerce enablement, which has led us to many, many different Investments, ship it, carted, search.io, there's been quite a few that have come out of that thematic. We've always done a lot in B2B, enterprise, mid-market, SaaS, and our thesis within that has been really around observability, so um, linking of data and workflow automation. So those are some of the really important ones. It's rare that we ever make an investment without having at least some of something of a preconceived thesis around the space. So founders that are looking to pitch to us, you can look at our portfolio and pretty much self-select as to whether or not it would be something that we're interested in or not. So that's kind of number one is the market. And the, the tailwinds in those markets, most of them weren't really related to the market cycle itself. I think, you know, e-commerce penetration is still low. That will continue to increase. Focus on cybersecurity will continue to increase. So the tailwinds are the same. We did a review of our thesis and our core thematics for Fund 3. And whilst there's some tweaking to some of them, we actually just added more, to be honest. Like we, we were looking more at, you know, starting to, to figure out um, a few things in education tech, for example, some different applications that we could potentially get interested in for health tech. It'll be more of an expansion, I think, for Fund 3 in terms of what we're interested in. And, and we're certainly not dogmatic about investing in things that we don't understand. It's just that we're going to be faster to get to conviction on, on the areas that we've already thought through quite deeply. So that'll be one. Um, the second thing is just the unit economics. And I know that the early stage companies, it's very hard to understand the path to profitability, but we take a pretty strong viewpoint on what the business model could look like over time. And we work with founders on this pretty closely, actually, because there's a lot that can be done to enhance the value of the business through things like pricing. And one particularly that we take an interest in is the go-to-market strategy and whether that is product-led or sales-led. We tend to lean towards models that are extremely efficient. We are not dogmatic about product-led or sales-led, and most of our companies are, I would say, product-led sales. So there's a, there's a mix, 
Can, can you explain the difference yep. between product led and sales led and what the advantages and disadvantages of either of those might be? So product led growth is something that is very, it's a very specific type of go to market strategy and it's not suited to all businesses. Some people say that it is a bottoms up strategy where you're potentially selling into a single user and then that user goes out and gets other people to use the product. And so there's natural expansion and it's heavily marketing driven. So within the funnel, you are trying to capture a very wide target market, narrow down on your ideal customer profile and convert them through a funnel with activation of the product itself. So you're actually looking more at activation rates and retention rates than you are at like MQL to SQL conversion as you would in a sales-led model. I would say it's like, it's more of a machine. Product-led growth is more of a machine where you're optimizing on metrics. Sales-led, it is something of a machine, but it's more nuanced and it requires people and people management and ensuring that those people have sales enablement tools and that they are being supported with the right amount of leads and all of the operational things that we know kind of make a sales-led model tick. So I actually think in reality, there are methods within each that can be applied to each strategy and every business is different. And so we more just work from a first principles basis with the founder on what is it exactly that your customer wants and how do they buy? And that comes straight back to really like core product theory and jobs to be done theory and being able to objectively evaluate who the ideal customer is and who you should be targeting. So the market size is a big factor. The contract size is a big factor. It's com- it's quite complicated. <laughs> like and, it's, and just it's take double click take a while. Just to double click on examples of both. So you'd sort of put a last in and Canva in the product led growth bucket. You know, the people try the product, they love it, they tell their friends and more people just, you know, keep buying it. As you say, sales led is more you get a salesperson that goes to an enterprise and sells them the, you know, the particular software. Who would be an example of that? A sales led model, almost any enterprise software company, ServiceNow, uh, HubSpot, Salesforce, and in fact, almost any product led company has migrated to a sales strategy at some point. Both Atlassian and Canva have sales teams and enterprise products. So they went more from the started with PLG and then moved more towards sales. Eventually, everyone moves (laughs) towards sales. If you want to move up a contract value spectrum in order to really scale the business to, you know, when you're starting to sort of get to high levels of ARR growth and you need to try to capture a wider market, then you tend to need to deploy resources behind a sales-led strategy. But at the seed stage, we're not we're not really thinking about that yet. We probably think about what's the best way to approach the market for this first phase of growth. And some products and markets and customers are going to be better suited to sales-led and some are going to be better suited to product-led. What we look for is not the label, but the, the likely velocity and traction that can come from the model itself. And so looking at things like our partner channel enablement and other kind of hacky ways to improve growth between seed and series A and show that it can be consistent and repeatable when additional capital comes into the business. That's really where we're focused. But we always think, do the unit economics of this business stack up? Not because we care about, you know, not because we care about EBITDA margin. <laughs> That's all. Or it being profitable on day one. Yep. Let's see. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's got more to do with how much capital do you need? Because the more capital that the business needs, the more the founders and the investors get diluted over time and more dilution means a worse IRR metric. So 
we're very aligned, I would say, with our founders at the seed phase around trying to crack the path to market that is the most efficient. Having said that, founders are trying to solve big problems and some of them will need to raise large amounts of capital to solve those problems and, and that's not something that we shy away from either. You have offices in Australia and in the US, but I presume that you largely invest in Australian founders. Do you think that there's any unique advantages or disadvantages to being an Australian founder? I don't think that Australian founders are at as much of a disadvantage as they used to be. The available market for capital in Australia, it's quite wide and deep given the available number of founders to invest in. And you have a group of venture capital investors in Australia that are highly focused on the region. And you also have, which has you know, started to happen in the last couple of years, international investors that are getting more interested in the region. So you're highly educated population. People are generally doing okay financially and can afford to take a risk on starting a company. So we have a global mentality to begin with anyway. Most of us are pretty comfortable with the fact that we have to get on calls early in the morning and late in the evening. I would say the founders in our portfolio that have kind of overcome the barriers, the, the kind of geographical barriers, the best are the ones who just spend as much time as possible in foreign markets. So if you're selling into the US market, spending time over there quite a lot seems to be a real a real way to unlock understanding of that market. This is for title, you know, we're very focused on globally minded founders who are selling into global markets from day one. So we are looking for people who don't think small, I think, when, you know, when they're looking at their addressable market in Australia. So yeah, there are, look, there are pros and cons. I do think that Australian founders are definitely, they tend to do a lot more with less. They have a more of a focus on only raising capital if they need it and moving forward with good proof points before they raise the next round, which is something to be encouraged, particularly in these conditions, market conditions that we're working within now. There's lots of setbacks and detours and opportunities to demonstrate resilience as a founder. For you personally, have there been setbacks or failures that you've personally really learned from? Oh, yes. I strongly believe that you don't really get easy investing until you've failed <laughs> on a couple of investments. I'd probably rather not talk specifically about, about those failures, but I would say the stressful times where you invest in something, you put yourself on the line, you put your LP's money on the line and how you actually react to that and what that means and understanding that things are not up and to the right in startups. So, you know, you have to be able to lean in just as heavily where things plateau, which happens really often. It's usually a, a growth spike and then a plateau and then a growth spike and then a plateau. And if you're not the kind of person that's willing to roll up your sleeves when the plateau is occurring, then, um, you know, it's not for you. It's actually a really difficult job and can be extremely stressful when you're having to sort of answer to people. And you also have a personal relationship with a founder who you care deeply about, who you're wanting to support, and you have to be able to work on the company with them whilst also be conscious of your LPs and the money that you're managing in the background as well. Yes, definitely. That has happened to me um, <laughs> in multiple roles. And I would probably also say, even before I started in venture, so I, you know, when I joined at Rackspace, I joined in a, a individual contributor role in a sales position. And I always have a soft spot for people who have worked in sales before because you get rejected all day long and you need to hustle to improve your deal flow. So I think I took that to VC investing. You know, I, I just have a view that if you're here for a free ride, you know, you're not going to be able to unlock the outcome. So 
it's a lean in and do stuff kind of mentality that I bring to things and I kind of apply that to the people around me as well but it's also being humble and you know being able to take it (laughs) I I would say you know anytime you take something to investment committee in a VC fund you you get a dose of humble pie every single time it's not as though you have a bunch of people sitting around the table saying yay let's do this like you get grilled right you get interrogated and um, you need to be able to withstand that and hold your own it takes a long time in your career to be able to like develop those chops and be able to kind of give that, take that, do it with respect, take it for what it is and not take it personally. So yes. <laughs> What's the best advice you've received along the journey? Oh, um, some funny ones come to mind, which I might not mention, but there's one thing that, that actually has been said to me once or twice from people that I work with and that's control the controllables. Because as an investor, you know, as a particularly in VC, you're a minority investor, there's some things that you that are within your control and there are some things where you're sitting and coaching or providing a sounding board or a, it's an alternative viewpoint. And this is probably the difference between investing and operating is knowing when to sort of sit back, provide your viewpoint, be there as a sounding board, and then let things develop the way they're going to develop versus trying to control the outcome, control people, that sort of thing is not something that that ever ends well. So I always keep that in the back of my mind, both um, professionally and personally as well, right? There's some things that are within your control and it's really not worth sweating the small stuff if it's out of your control. You just kind of set things up and hope for the best and it's a very much a marathon, not a sprint. That's probably something that's the other piece of um, advice that I would have that I've had given to me and that I often give to our founders is if you're sweating small stuff kind of month to month, even year to year, this is a long game. In VC, you're not going to know if you're actually good at it (laughs) for 10 years until the end of the fund. And for founders, you know, you're not in this for the quick win. You're in it for quite a long time. So try not to sweat the small stuff and just focus on continuously moving things forward. Has there been someone in your life that you really admire either from afar or that's been instrumental in a personal way to getting to where you are today? Um, look, my dad uh, definitely has going all the way back to the origins. It always seems to be people's parents. My dad was, was just like that. He was a bit of a don't worry about it, get on with it kind of guy. And he took me to work, taught me things at a very young age about stuff like having staff and, you know, showing leadership and being on time for things and deliverables and responsibility. And I think that that has always really resonated with me. And I, anytime I, I think about something that seems like a big deal, I often think of my dad and imagine him just laughing it off, <laughs> which he would. <laughs> and, you know, sadly, he's no, longer, he's no longer with us, but always in spirit. He's definitely the person that sits alongside me in any um, important meeting that I feel like I have to take. He would think it's all pretty funny if you told him if you told him the sort of stuff that's important to people. And he's probably the, the main admirer. And then I would probably just say, you know, my, my partners at Tidal, Grant and Wendell, they took me under their wing years ago and just the diversity and depth of experience that they have and the kind of the way that they look at opportunities, work with founders, and they built this culture around a team, around a vision to try to support founders at the seed phase, it's quite impressive. They could be doing anything and they choose to do this. And so I love working with people like that. 
because it just makes it just makes every day not really feel like work. For someone who works in technology investing, I was surprised to learn that you don't really engage in social media. What's your view on that? Uh, oh, look, I don't love social media. I understand why people spend a lot of time on it for marketing purposes, and, and I see what it can do. I'm not saying that it that it wouldn't be part of a, a future strategy for me, but I tend to I tend to be a little bit more, you know, I like to work in, with people one-on-one. <laughs> I don't think that there are many things that I have to say necessarily that apply to so many people. And so I, I'd rather tailor my mes- my messaging for a smaller group rather than kind of put a lot of information out there. I, I do I do write a bit and I do share content with our founders more specifically. So I think the richness of knowledge that we have built up within Tidal gets shared with a with a more closed ecosystem. That might change a little bit in the future. We haven't had a huge marketing focus for the fund in the past. And so we'll, we'll probably look to ramp that up a bit more for fund three. So you may see me a little bit more on, on social media, but I think I have a, a little bit of a view on Twitter that the um, the less intelligent your post, the more likely you are to get followers. So it kind of puts me off a little bit. I I, I don't mind LinkedIn. I, I like LinkedIn because it's more of a closed ecosystem of people that I've worked with in the past and who are following me for more professional reasons. But yeah, probably not a huge fan of. I, I don't use any of the other platforms, like Instagram or Facebook. I never have been really interested in those either. So I, maybe I'm weird. <laughs> well, it's when you're trying to do what you're doing, you need to optimize for what brings you pleasure, but also what makes most of your time. And I know you're a voracious reader. Are there any books that you'd recommend? Oh, look, yes, I, I read a lot. I'm not about to um, offer a bunch of business books because I don't read business books generally. I, I've read a couple. Generally, I just I find them too broad brush. And really, I mean, working with businesses every day, you, you learn a lot. I, I read a lot of fiction, historical fiction I love. And I think it's the, the comment on humanity that maybe appeals to me a little bit more about reading books. I just read an amazing book by, I think her name's Sarah Winman, and it was called Still Life. It was set in um, post-war Florence and just an amazing story about a um, you know, World War II veteran who, who moves to Florence. And it was actually a story about fate and people that he'd met before that came back into his life and where they kind of almost skirted on the outskirts of, of almost meeting. I, I love books like that that comment on history. It was set in Florence with a focus on art history and it um, was set there when the floods sort of happened I think it was like in the 1970s and flooded all of the amazing museums and galleries that's probably my main recommendation I read so many books that I'm probably just going to recommend the latest one I read that I liked (laughs) I don't really have favorites and I rarely read them twice and anything that you do that you think unlocks productivity in your life gives you more time to do your work or find time for reading or or otherwise you know helps you be productive oh okay prioritization ask any working mom is like life your calendar is key I think I block so I, I from, my, from my perspective productivity has to relate to both both work life and home life you know I block my calendar the time spent with my daughter um, and I look after her some mornings and afternoons so I have quite a, a hectic um, mom schedule on top of my work schedule being flexible with what can be done in the evening versus what needs to be done during work hours. I'm lucky enough that we've got a good hybrid culture at Tidal. So we've got sort of the two days in the office where I do all of my meetings back to back. 
<laughs> the team have seen me eating like a Vegemite sandwich that I've packed for myself in a meeting because I don't have time to go and get my lunch. So just eating <laughs> uh, and pre-preparing food. <laughs> Emails are something that's easy to do in the evening and are probably it's a waste of time to do them during the day. Setting aside a day a week, which for me is Friday, to do deep thinking work. It's, a, it's, it's awful if you can end up, and this is a, a problem for so many of my founders, ending up with such a packed meeting schedule with their staff that they are setting aside time to work on the business. And we've got a great culture title around setting our quarterly goals and having projects that we move forward to actually improve the fund over time rather than simply execute on operationally what we need to do, which is raise money and, and make investments. So setting aside time to work on that is, is really key. I would love to say that I have worked out a, a way to fit in exercise and me time on top of all of that, but I do, I manage to get in about half an hour of reading before I go to sleep each night, which I, it's kind of like a, my wind down, but that's as good as it gets, not what it used to be. <laughs> and what about advice you would give to founders? I know you've just said that, you know, you encourage them to block out time for deep work, but any other pieces of advice you'd give to founders, particularly if they're thinking about raising capital? Raising capital, I could probably give something really practical, which is figure out how much money you actually need to take the business to the next phase and then work backwards from there. You can figure out if that number is a million dollars, $2 million, $3 million, literally figure out the actual people that you would need and then work backwards from there and figure out which funds actually fit that mandate because it's actually really obvious in Australia. People make their check sizes really clear. So, you know, for us, for example, if you were looking at raising a a seed round, anything from two to five million dollars, we would look at taking the majority of that and leading the round, and then start by trying to find your lead, and um, really focus in on what do they invest in, put together a compelling pitch for that investor, and make a good case. I do think that founders probably talk to too many VCs too early um, and spread themselves fairly thin across that. Without it, it can be a real waste of time, right? Because most VCs will say no, but we'll probably do a little bit of DD first. So you're spending quite a lot of time answering questions and things like that when they may not be a fit. So try to qualify them, is what I would say. And then just more with regards to building the business, I think the thing that I've seen work the best with our founders is being really, really careful about those early hires and finding people that are really, really high quality and probably have a mix, have a mixture of leadership skills and individual contributor skills. Like the more people you can get are, who are happy to be hands-on and can actually do things. Uh, as opposed to kind of steer the ship, will just help with moving things forward from that sort of pre-seed to seed phase. You, you, you probably can't afford to bring on heaps of people, but even if it's just one or two people that are such an amazing extension of you, then um, it's worth really prioritising those people and incentivising them properly. So last question, what are you really optimistic or excited about? I think I'm an eternal optimist. I think that there's still so much opportunity to run in Australia, in startups, I think we're really just at the very beginning of this. The thing that makes me the most excited is we've just got all of these amazing people coming out of big tech companies now who know how to build products, know how to um, launch go-to-market strategies, a wide range of different strategies, you know, marketing, product-led growth, sales, and have worked with awesome international teams as well, and they can bring those learnings but they want to do something themselves. And so I think the depth of talent is going to improve. There's always going to be uh, a lot of competition as some of the biggest tech companies continue to get funded, but you can't stop 
you can't stop founders from wanting to be founders. So uh, there'll always be a portion of people who want to be founding their own thing. So I think the quality is going to improve and there are so many problems <laughs> to solve that you know, people feel really passionately about it. I think it used to be that people look mainly for business opportunities and now people look for mission. Mission is something that just drives people regardless of market conditions. So that's what makes me really optimistic and excited, mainly because our third fund is going to be an $80 million fund and we're going to be able to lead the seed round in some of the best founders. We'll do a deal a month out of that fund. So that, that cadence is going to start ramping pretty soon. So we're really looking for people who have the ability to sort of show how they would deploy that capital, you know, a, a decent sized seed round, get some great talent in the business, hit some proof points. We're seeing, you know, the market support great outcomes for, for great people building great things. So I still think um, I'm optimistic about the next few years. Oh, well, it's fantastic to hear someone with your experience feel excited about what Australia has to offer and Hopefully, as you say, there's lots of problems to solve, but we're you know making a good dent in in actually using smart solutions. I know it's it's very very exciting, and yeah, I I think that there's been different views on on the market that have been bandied about, but the fact of the matter is, people want to start companies. Nothing's ever really stopped that, and so we're just looking to see more of that as it evolves over the next couple of years. Oh, well, it's fantastic to spend some time with you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks for having me. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.